It's the Pittsburgh Oddcast. Welcome everybody back to the Pittsburgh Oddcast. My name is Andrew Lindbergh, and with me as always is the founder of Odd Pittsburgh, John Chalkowski. Well, hello everybody. This week, continuing our march to 100, 100 years of commercial radio. Think about that, 100 years. Not many things last 100 years, right? I mean, that's a big, big deal. <laughs> and I don't even know if people realize the significance I always mention this, uh, the significance of radio. I mean, prior to 1920, while there was technology was around, for even 20 years before that, with the invention of radio, with Reginald Fezzedin and, and Marconi and all those greats, uh, but how it kind of mass media and the social media of its day, you know, in 1920, as uh, Mike Pintek used to say, um, <clears throat> and how revolutionary radio really has become and is. Uh, from you know shouting through a megaphone to now being able to transport your voice somehow through the air uh, and, and to be received and heard by millions, the potential for millions, is absolutely incredible. And um, you don't have many opportunities to talk to a Frank Conrad, uh, a person who was in control uh, and literally programmed or was a director of programming, and today... I bring you a special guest, and that is the program director of KDKA and 93.7 The Fan, Mr. Jim Gracie. Hi, John. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Nice to be here. Thank you. Thank Thank you you for joining us, boss. Thank you, Andy. Some people know what they want to do. Some people like me had no clue what they want to do. I still don't know what I want to do. I take it day by day. But you, I found, did know what you want to do, kind of. And, and that's what I want to look back at. So where, where were you born? I was born in Lebanon, Pennsylvania, about 30 miles east of Harrisburg. Okay. Uh, I was one of seven kids. And wow. And my father was a Pennsylvania state policeman. Oh, okay. So we were always, uh, you know, money was tight. You know, I had a lot of family members. I mean, it, we had a roof over our head and food mm-hmm. on the table, but, you know, we didn't have a lot of, you know, uh, free money around to be able to go buy your pair of shoes or go buy the basketball you wanted or anything like that. So at a very early age, I learned a work ethic, you know, from my father and from my brothers and sisters. I mean, I had a newspaper route when I was 10 and, you know, started delivering Sunday papers when I was 11 (laughs) and, uh, you know, build up quite a business that way and expand it the route. And then I always was fascinated by radio. I I got involved in it when my two older sisters happened to be dating two disc jockeys at a local radio station. And so when I was 11 years old, they took me out and I had my first tour of a radio station. And when I walked in and I saw it, it was like, this is it. This is exactly what I want to do. And I was fortunate that my voice changed at a younger age. So Mm -hmm. by the time I was 15, I pretty much had the voice I have now. I mean, right, right. Certainly, scotch and cigarettes has affected it a little <laughs> bit over the course of the last few years. But, but d- d- generally speaking, right. I, I was I was at that point. So, uh, and back almost fifty years ago, um, radio was a totally different. Uh, the 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 business itself, the business model was totally different because back then there were. Uh, provisions that were on each radio station because, as you all know, the airwaves are owned by the public, so regulated by the Federal Communications Commission, but the airwaves are owned by the people. So there were regulations that were in place to protect from any form of monopolistic 
ideologies being propagated over the course of radio or television. Over right, there. right. So, so what the rules were were that a company, one company could only own one AM station, one FM station, and either a television station or a newspaper in a town. You could not own any more than that. Hmm. So uh, consequently, there were a lot of owners of radio stations back then, not only in small markets and medium markets and large markets. So now think about this. 50 years ago, there was no satellite-delivered programming. Right. There were there were very few opportunities to have any kind of recorded programming on the air other than what you were recording yourself. Right. And uh, there were a lot of opportunities to get in radio. Consequently, there were also a lot of openings in radio <laughs> right, because you right. know all the different radio stations. Yeah. My first start in radio when I was 15 years old was playing beautiful music. That was a format where it would be wow. you'd listen to the best way I could describe it now would be for people that might remember Muzak, the right, music right. you would have in elevators, like you know, 101 they, strings. Yeah, they would take you would take <laughs> right. a contemporary song, and yeah. now an orchestra would do right. that song, and right. that would be the music that they would play in these radio stations because there was still that that kickback about oh, rock and roll is bad. I don't want to hear it on my radio <laughs> right. station. I'd rather hear Montavani and and Barbara Streisand songs. You right, know, that right. Kind of thing. And this is what like 1974 this is 1974 or 1974. Yeah, okay. so. I had I, I would play these big ten inch reel to reel tapes wow. and at the top of every hour do the legal ID, which was beautiful music at ninety two point one WCTX Palmyra. That was it. <laughs> nice. And that was once an hour. So my shift was Saturday mornings from six in the morning till six in the evening. Wow. And then Sunday mornings from six thirty in the morning till six in the evening. And that was wow. my shift. So, wow. Yeah, wow. That's you, how I you, got started. Geez. So no I did that for six laws? months. <laughs> I did that for six months right. and then Christmas Day, nineteen seventy four, is when I finally started for the first time on a top forty radio station where wow. I could be the disc jockey that right. I wanted to be. Yeah, yeah. So. Wow. I mean that's that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> like how did so but I know when I was 15 years old, the last thing I was thinking about was committing myself to something 12 hours long yeah. during a day. And that's commitment. That really does show yeah, and, you know, and, your passion. And, 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 and I was fortunate that I had mentors, people that were teaching me the business. So it wasn't just there playing tapes. I mean, back right. then you had to learn how to edit. Mm-hmm. And editing back then was with a razor blade and a quarter-inch piece of tape that you right. could slice the tape and then tape it together with splicing. literally cut it literally yes. cut it and yeah. then put what was called splicing tape that you would put back on tape to to do the the hard edit right or you would cut it sideways to make it more of a transitional edit wow so, nice. but then you would learn to i started learning how to edit music that way hmm. so i would start listening to the beats on the music and you could roll the tape back and forth and you could hear the thunk 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 which would be the actual hit of the drum beat right. or the whatever instrument happened to be playing at the time that you could then cut on the beat or cut on the offbeat. So then all that world of production opened up its doors right. to me and then it became, because I was fascinated by music as well. In fact, I probably would have been a musician had I been good enough instead of getting okay. into radio. Yeah. So I, would have, I wanted to be a musician, but I wasn't good enough. So <laughs> ended up in radio. Hey, being around, you know, the, the music scene in general is... Um, well, same thing. It's like, you know, I wanted to be a classical composer, yeah. and then I wanted to be in a heavy metal rock and roll band, you know, and, um, but I, you know, those were hard. It's not 1880 anymore. Nobody's going to hire me to write an opera. So what do you do? 
Right. Right. And that's well, exactly and, and, right. And it's that versatility of being able to be interested in a great many things. Not only mm-hmm. did I was a disc jockey, but I also did the news. I would go get the news from the courthouse. I would write the news. I would perform the news. I would go cover sporting events. I would write uh, in the newspaper. I, I, I freelanced as a correspondent in the local newspaper in the Lebanon Daily News when wow. I was still in high school as well. Wow. I would. Uh, I was lucky enough to have an uncle who had a, um, a jukebox company. Mm-hmm. Okay, Melody Music was the name of the company. And so when he would empty out the jukeboxes and put new records in, he would give me the old 45s. Wow. So then I would also ma- augment uh, my my work by what we called back then were record hops. So I would mm-hmm. play music at parties at you know high school reunions yeah, yeah. or like Porky Chadwick parties. Or like, exactly. Yeah. And so it was between doing that and writing in the newspaper and working in radio, that was how I kind of paid my way through high school, college, and, and moving forward. Definitely why you're the program director, <laughs> I can tell you that. Yeah, so uh, I know it took a long time. You know, to get here, and um, and that I I read somewhere that you were part of the Pacific Northwest, you know, the 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 Deep South market, yeah, I, uh, you know, from Atlanta. To, I used to tell people my resume was Steve Miller's "Rockin' Me" song. Nice, yeah. I've been to Phoenix, Arizona, all the way to Tacoma, Philadelphia, Atlanta, L.A., and then Northern California, where the girls were warmer, was supposed to be next, and I ended up in Pittsburgh. <laughs> right, three times actually, I ended up back in Pittsburgh. So, like, how did the? Um, and I also know that you did. Um, with public announcement, public for, address announcing, yeah, yeah, public address. So, how did that? Was that just a natural kind of follow up? It, it, it kind of uh, followed the radio trail. I mean, radio was always my full time profession. Mm-hmm. I, I shouldn't say always. Most of my time during mm-hmm. the last forty five, fifty years, it was my full time profession. Um, as I said about writing freelance for newspaper or doing uh, doing parties and playing music right. at parties, you know, you kind of always look for that side opportunity mm-hmm. and. When I was in Atlanta, there was uh, actually has a Pittsburgh connection. When oh, nice. I was in Atlanta, uh, they were looking for a public address announcer for the Atlanta Hawks. Hmm. And it was because the guy who was the previous public address announcer had actually introduced a player from the Los Angeles Clippers who at the time was on that team. And he introduced him as a 6-1 guard from the... Uh, from Duquesne University. <laughs> right. And when I was doing my interview, I uh, went on, I went in the arena and I announced and read some stuff and they heard me and then they come, brought me back for an interview and they said to me, uh, there's, uh, there's, new, there's some universities in Pittsburgh I wanted to ask you about. I said, sure, I'm from Pennsylvania. What do you want to know? And I said, well, you know, th- th- tell me some of the universities. I said, well, there's Pitt, uh, there's uh, Carnegie Mellon, uh, and I've Sorry, that's Robert Morris. And they said, no, 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 we're talking about a Catholic university. And I went, oh, uh, uh, Duquesne. And the guy reached his hand out to me, shook my hand, and said, congratulations, you got the job. And and I said, thank you. Right. And I asked him, why? And he proceeded to tell me that they introduced Norm Nixon from Duquesne. So said, <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, that, that's uh... – So that was the start. Yeah. So I got, I got to do it. And, and I, it, was, it was wonderful. I mean, I was at a time when the Hawks were, were really generally at their peak. Uh, when Dominique Wilkins and Doc Rivers and Spud Webb and all those guys wow. played for the Hawks in the 80s, I was doing the public address at the Omni in Atlanta. Wow. And then I, we moved to Seattle, and shortly thereafter, I got the public address job for the Supersonics. Wow. And that's probably where I got most of my uh, most of my fame from was doing yeah. public address in Seattle for 10 seasons. So. And oh, then yeah. did you do radio at the same time? I did. I did. I was... Uh, when I first got to Seattle, actually, we got there. My wife, who also was in radio, 
Uh, she actually got the job in Seattle. She was, uh, but it wasn't in radio. It was actually working for uh, 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 Virgin Records. Oh, she okay. was a yeah. promotions rep for Virgin Records. So I got there, and uh, they were just been starting. They just started a satellite radio company hmm. in Seattle, and it was wonderful. It, it only lasted a year, but uh, it, in that one year, I had a chance to work with the great Rick Sklar. And for those oh, wow. who don't know who Rick Sklar is. Rick was the program director of WABC in New York. He was the one that brought the Beatles, that was with the Beatles yeah, when the yeah. Beatles were in New York at wow. WABC. In fact, he changed the name of the radio station to WA Beatles C when they came to town <laughs> yeah, in 1964. Yeah. And Rick was just a brilliant, he and his wife Sidel were just brilliant radio programmers. He worked for ABC for many, many years. And so I got a chance to work with him and a, and a Northwest legend named Pat O'Day, hmm. who, uh, you know, and, and you love being around people in the business that you can really learn from. And so, and a lot of my programming acumen has come from some of these guys that are just brilliant radio minds and just how to capture the, the, uh, the, the marketplace and how to capture the, uh, and inspire the community, you know, yeah. and that's, God, that's, that's what we do. Oh that's yeah. What radio it reminds me about. of, um, I, I started doing my historical things, uh, through very, very local, hyper local historical societies. And, uh, one of them was the Westview historical society, mm-hmm. there was Westview park that was there from, uh, 1905 or 1906 to 1977. And um, one of the big headliners, the big things there was Dance Land. Okay. Now, every community has a Dance Land. Everybody, you know, has a little place where people would go, like someone, even going back to Glenn Miller days and, and people like that, like Benny Goodman. But Chuck Brinkman and his involvement with uh, KQV, you know, sure. and, and bringing that to Pittsburgh. And he got heavily involved with the Westview Historical Society uh, as, as an older man, retired, you know, and uh, before he passed away have the opportunity to talk to somebody like that who was a uh, legendary Pittsburgh music pro- promoter really mm-hmm. more than you know and uh it it was invaluable uh to knowing the industry and knowing how that kind of from the early 60s and how it developed into what it is today and uh, and how to keep that legacy going because a lot of people especially people of a certain age range you know grew up with that and that's their fond memories and our generation don't, we don't really have the same type of thing you know it's not it's different to us, we Andy's unique. The fact that he's what you've listened to, KDK since I was like born, <laughs> you know, and yeah, uh, and, and so it's uh, but but that that kind of legacy of learning from all these other greats that have have come there and learning, you know, how to develop and to make you a better person, you know. Well, it's and, fascinating. and think about the, you know, it's really the last twenty five years where technology has just exploded to the point that there is not that. Um, medium that you can go back to and rely on and mm-hmm. say, hey, uh, this is what I did because this is all I had available to me. Right. I mean, when, when I was, you know, growing up, I had a transistor radio in my ear mm-hmm. and going to bed at night, you know, listening right. to music. I mean, that was the only real form of entertainment that you had after you were not allowed to watch television after, <laughs> right. you know, when you were sent to bed. Exactly. So, so, you know, when we would, I would listen to old, ba- I'd, I, not old baseball, I listened to baseball games, you know, mm-hmm. the West Coast games and stuff yeah. like that. And, and uh, so radio was always part of our fabric and our environment. And, and I always wanted to be that. Uh, I, I always wanted to be that voice on the radio. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was that something about it, but I made more success not being the voice on the radio as much as I was being behind the scenes in radio. Well, so can you I mean, can you talk about that a little bit? Like sure. when you got your big break, necessarily on air, uh, what your DJ name was, and <laughs> then when you switched over to more behind the scenes stuff. Well, my DJ name I was always 
my real name except for one time when I had to change it. And I couldn't, and usually you kind of keep your first name, mm-hmm. but I couldn't keep my first name because there were two other gyms at this radio station. There was a Jim Roberts and a Jim Buchanan. Uh, so I had to change my first name. <laughs> and then there was a weekender whose last name was Tracy, so I couldn't use Gracie. Right. So I ended up uh, I ended up naming myself there after my two nephews. So I was Matt Michaels. Oh, that that's a good one. So when I was Matt Michaels at WKBO in Harrisburg was when I first met and started working with the great Mike Pintech. Oh, wow. And I also worked in that area as we were doing, you know, as I said, he did a little bit of everything back mm-hmm. then. Uh, I used to, I, I worked in Lebanon, and Mike was in Harrisburg. And Fred Hansberger was in Harrisburg, and Dennis Edwards was in Reading or Lancaster or one of them. And so we used to exchange um, uh, news stories for each of our radio stations because mm-hmm. back then on the AM, we would do news and play music, and it was full-service radio stations back then. Right. So we'd have a news present, and you were required by law to do a certain amount of public service mm-hmm. broadcasting, which that got wiped out in the early 80s. Uh, when Ronald Reagan signed a deregulation uh, 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 that really took away the necessity or the demand for radio stations to have to play public service commercials Hmm. and have to play public service programming. That's why music stations will just play... I'm sorry, I just hit the microphone. That's why music stations will just play... uh, um, you know, twenty four seven music now because they're right. not required hmm. to do any public service, whereas back then you had to. So that's where I got to know all of these greats in radio, and uh, got to know Mike, and got to know Fred, and got to know you know because we were growing up in the same area and right. you know, cutting, our, it, uh, cutting our teeth. Mike was your boss, right? Mike was my boss. Then, well, I did overnights, and Mike was the news director. So what I would do is I would record because Mike knew nothing about sports. <laughs> So <laughs> that's true. Uh, uh, so I would record his sports casts for him for morning. So I'd do the overnight show, record the sports, give it to Mike, and so we'd have sports casts that he'd be able to do to play mm-hmm. uh, in the morning. And then whenever, whenever he needed somebody to pinch in and fill it in news, I would do that as well. So in fact, I was there with him when he did Three Mile Island. I mean, uh, oh really? Oh, wow, yeah, that was wow. when that all happened. I wasn't going to let the biggest news story in the world in my own backyard happen without being there. So. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what was the transition like uh, moving from, you know, in front of the mic to behind? Well, uh, it, it was the transition kind of went from being on the air to going into the studio. And then when I got into the studio and I, I was a production director for an, probably seven, eight years of my career. And then I had a production company of my own that I had for five years when my wife was doing mornings and you know somebody had to get the kids off to school in the morning so that's right. when I had my production company but what I learned from that was and this was back in a time where um, we were just starting to tie studios together electronically so we would have these this piece of equipment what was called ISDN machines where basically uh, you would you could tie studios together and it would sound studio quality hmm. he could be in New York and I'd be in here in right, Pittsburgh right. And, you know, our studios would be linked and we could hear each other on a, and then I could record that person, that woman, that man, whoever was my voiceover talent, and then utilize that for the project that I was working on. It was during that time that I realized that that's when I really wanted to uh, become a program director because I had worked for a number of program directors, some really good and some really bad. And I realized that there wasn't a lot of coaching that was happening anymore in our industry. And one of the things that had me kind of stand out from the other producers that were doing things that I was doing is I would coach the air talent. 
I would get these voiceover guys and I'd say, hey, okay, give me give me your take and then why don't you do it this way? And I'd give them some alternate alternate mm-hmm. ways of you know reading lines and stuff. And they all were incredibly appreciative of the opportunity to get coached. Mm-hmm. And I started, the more I was doing it, the more I thought, you know, this is what I really need to do. So as the opportunities presented themselves, I finally got the opportunity to to program. And I had done operations at radio stations before where I was doing a little bit of programming and more, you know, the nuts and bolts behind the scenes stuff. Mm. And then uh, an opportunity presented itself to program uh, uh, ESPN. And I took it and moved back to Pittsburgh and took over ESPN 1250 in 2004. Yeah, that was was a a lot of powerhouse talent on that. It was what, Stan, Crow, Junker. Yeah, Mike and Mike did the mornings, and Mike and Mike, we had Mike and Mike in Pittsburgh probably at, at least 15 times that they would come to town because, wow. they, they first of all, it was easy for them to get here. Second mm-hmm. of all, they loved coming here, and Pittsburgh being such a big sports town, it was it, it was it was natural to bring them oh, in. Yeah. And one of the things I had the opportunity to do uh, was to bring a midday show onto that radio station because at that point it was just network programming, and then Mark Madden did the afternoons on, on uh, 1250, so... I was able to get uh, get some local programming on right. wow. that that really helped jump start the sports talk phenomena that mm-hmm. is now in Pittsburgh. Right, that you are now uh, recently, I guess. Well, I mean, you have been for a while, but yeah. just recent this week, I think, was named what number one. Uh, the, um, the the fan, yeah, the, yeah, fan, the fan was fan. named the number one mid market uh, sports talk station in the country. Right. Uh, by wow. a uh, by a, a group of you know sports talk program directors that uh, vote on this thing uh, with Barrett Sports Media nationally. So uh, we were the mid market number one, and uh, the Sports Hub in Boston was the major market number one station. Wow. In the country. And Boston does it again, right? With like, you know, 1903, our World Series, Boston, Boston versus, does it uh, again. versus yeah. the Pirates. So well, that, that, that I'm sorry, that's something that I think radio demands more than anything else is a local feel to it. Uh, you know, I know that the bigger corporations tried to try to syndicate and try to make things happen uh, that way, which can be successful. But I think, especially in Pittsburgh, there's more of a demand for local content, which is why I think. Well, K-K yeah, it's like everyone likes like listen to Casey Kasem. You know, like you like that voice. You know, but you know when it have that Pittsburgh connection to it, I think people do appreciate that. I especially agree in sports it. talk yeah. radio. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sports. Yeah, yeah no doubt. Well, and. And in a major market, especially yeah. where there's a lot of you know personal interest in what you're doing, where uh, the network programming becomes pretty essential at this point, and it's all a cost-effective situation is now that you can give or provide programming to smaller markets that wouldn't necessarily be following you know have a local sports team that they'd be following. Mm-hmm. Maybe they only have one. Maybe it's a minor league team. Uh, that they would have the ability to have other programming on there. Uh, and that's where the kind of, uh, I, I, I say this in our, in our industry, is we basically aid our young because we don't have that small and medium market training ground opportunity now for somebody to break in, break in small, mm. learn their chops. I mean, I spent 10 years in small and medium market radio till I finally got to a major market. Right. You know, but that was because the talent level was so high mm-hmm. and their opportunities were so great that you better be on your game if you're right. going to be successful at it. Now, 
kids are coming right out of college and going right to major market because of the demand and the need for the for the people to be in the industry. But yeah. there are not as many jobs as there once were in that regard. So, so you you first became the program director for KDKA right after ESPN, right? Yeah, I uh, actually then, I actually uh, was at ESPN for seven years, and then I uh, went to Dallas for a year, and I programmed a news talk station in Dallas, KLIF for a year and then uh the kdk opportunity opened up and gave me a chance so what's to that to Pittsburgh. like so like I, I i being someone who's heavily involved with the inspiration of radio since the very beginning and i'm sure you know knowing a little bit about the history of kdk now of course mm-hmm. you know a lot about the history of kdk but um to realize that you are continuing the legacy by you know harry davis and frank conrad and even george westinghouse really you know the westinghouse corporation um, and liter- and being like when people look back 50 years from now and say, well, what was going on on the 100th anniversary of radio? <laughs> and say, well, there was this one guy, this program director, you know, who made it all happen, who kept it going, you know, who kept it a number one thing. Uh, and um, it, it, what's that feel like to have that legacy of, of, a, of a historic radio station versus a, uh, you know, just any old run of the mill? As someone who's a geek, for the industry, and I've been 46 years in radio now, uh, I I do have a certain respect and deep-seated love for, you know, all that is radio. I mean, I could have done a lot of other industries, but I chose to stay in radio because I, I, I do it because I always love to be the that imaginary hand that reaches out of that little three-inch speaker on the dashboard and, you know, kind of tickles that earlobe a little mm-hmm. bit just to get somebody's attention and tease them and then all at once and all of a sudden grab that earlobe and yank them right into the speaker because you can't, you know, I'm certainly talking metaphorically here, but it's, you know, you're so compelled that you can't even turn it off because of what it is that's coming through that speaker, whether it's a great story or uh, uh, or something that's, uh, you know, heartfelt or maybe even your favorite song that you just can't turn off. Whatever mm-hmm. it is, that, that that's what I was always so fascinated about our industry because think about all of the um, different senses that you can invoke by telling a good story. Yeah, that's absolutely by true. By being able to captivate somebody. And to answer your question about how it feels, I, I really don't look at myself as the program director or running KDKA. I think of myself as more of a caretaker of an iconic brand, so I just don't want to screw it up, to be honest. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I think that's how uh, a lot of people do feel about it because it's, uh, it's a legacy that is unique. Um, now, there are plenty of arguments, which we could all disprove, you know, about people claiming they're first, you know. <laughs> but the, uh, the, the impact that Westinghouse and KDK had uh, with the birth of the very first – baseball game ever live on the air the very first church service the very first uh uh you know everything yeah <laughs> literally everything first well, music played on the air well in westinghouse I mean, that's incredible it, it was interesting to study the history of how this all came to be because you know obviously there was wireless communication that had existed through marconi and 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 certainly ship to shore communication mm-hmm. was already in in vogue but that communication was more of of uh of a Morse code, right. sending the codes out that could go a long way. What Conrad was able to do was to be able to take the voice and transform that onto the airwaves. And that 
was a game changer because now you could hear a human voice. Now you could hear music. Now you could hear what we call analog mm-hmm. being played on all over the air. And what was fascinating to me was when they filed for the license, because at that point you had to be, you were either a ship or you were a shore based communication to get a license to be able to send it out. But what they wanted to do was they wanted to connect the Westinghouse operations together and telegraph poles and telegraph lines to string them up so that they could tie in Cleveland to Pittsburgh and Springfield, Massachusetts to Pittsburgh and Brooklyn, New York to Pittsburgh and Newark, New Jersey to Pittsburgh to string up all of these telegraph lines was really expensive. Yeah. So they filed for a shore-based communications uh, a license to be able to just communicate internally with their operation. But what they then realized was Dr. Conrad was experimenting with 88XK mm-hmm. in his garage, and he was doing this during World War I to help the federal government because we were working on our uh, wireless communications to aid our troops in World War I in, in Europe. So right. a lot of that was going on. Uh, they took all of wireless off the off the air. I mean, the, the federal government shut every shut everybody down right. except for Dr. Conrad because he was able to continue to to research and test for the benefit of the of the federal government and the military. Yeah. So, Dr. Conrad would advertise that you know he and his boys were going to play some music or tell some jokes or do some you know have a program on it. Right. You know, seven thirty on a Wednesday night, you put it in the Courier or the Telegraph or, mm-hmm. or the Press. And then they would see the amount of crystal sets that horns would sell following that advertisement that people were so curious to bring this entertainment to their home Mm -hmm. that when Westinghouse, and you mentioned H.P. Davis earlier, uh, when Davis saw that, they went, this is the game changer. If we can provide continuous programming, It'll give everyone a reason to want to buy one of those $10 crystal sets and bring them to their home and now be entertained in their home, something that has never happened before. Ever. Ever. (laughs) And and that's when their whole whole game plan, their whole business strategy changed. Mm -hmm. And that was from, I don't know, maybe April to August. And then they decided, okay, we're going to go for it and we're going to target... Uh, election day as the start of when we're going to do continuous programming, right. which is what they did. So the whole mantra changed to become a radio station or a station to play and entertain rather than connect between our individual companies. Oh, incredible. I mean, yeah. and to think that it happened in Pittsburgh, you know, yeah. of all places, well, Westinghouse and uh, their company, you know, I mean, they revolutionized television later, you know, right. uh, 20 years after that. And it's funny because you say television. Television was supposed to be the great killer of radio, you know, is radio <laughs> right. with pictures, you know, and and then uh, and then the internet was supposed to be the great killer of radio mm-hmm. because now all of a sudden you get it on your computer. It's a, you know, did it affect radio listening? Yeah, it did a little bit. So instead of being ninety three percent of everybody in the United States spends at least an hour a day on a radio station or listening to a radio station, it's down to ninety two percent. Everybody spends at least an hour a day listening to a radio station. Right. So. We're still here. We're still yeah. here. We're still and and it's the great thing is that is that we're here and we provide a service. I don't want to de-emphasize how important KDKA and Entercom takes its its goal. No, well, no, its mantra. Really, 
to provide a community service, especially with KDK and yeah. all of the news talk stations and the news stations that we have in our group. Uh, we, you know, do I want great ratings? Absolutely. Do I want more people listening to my radio station than any other? No question. But what I really want to be sure and make sure is that we are able to get the information out to the people when they need it. Because yeah. in Western Pennsylvania, if, if something does happen, we are the primary station for emergency alert. You know, so if something happens, right. everybody in the, the Western Pennsylvania will put our audio on their radio station so that we can wow. disseminate information to help through whatever, uh, whatever you know, situation happens to crop up at that time. Uh, and it's just, it, it goes down to just even the very basics. Can Marty Griffin help an old lady get a roof on her house? Right. You know, can, can we make sure that a homeless person has a place to sleep tonight? Mm -hmm. Can we shine a light on, uh, a woman who's been baking cookies and sending them over to the servicemen overseas for the last 20 years? You know, it's mm -hmm. like stuff like that, that. That's what I'm really into. That's what oh, I'm yeah. intrigued by. How can we showcase our community, and what better way to do that than on KDKA? And I feel like that's, since I do digital now mostly for our websites, is the ability to enhance, say there's a missing child. We can now put that child's photo on our website, and you know Paul Rasmussen or Rose Ryan Douglas will give the description, hey, we're, we're, police need help looking for this 13-year-old. See their picture on, because you can't put pictures on the radio, but you can tell people, hey, go see your picture on the on our website. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like a, a synergy kind of thing oh, yeah. right now. And, I mean, just what KDK does for the people, you know, like spaghetti breakfast, you know. the mm -hmm. um, You know, half those people, I'm sure, are not, you know, I mean, some of them are off the streets, you know. So you're providing a, uh, a service, a unique way that you know it's radio is free to listen to if you can find a way to you know just stand near somebody's car you can hear the radio well you know for example uh depends on when you're listening to this but in the middle of february every year kdka does two days of with the dollar energy fund mm -hmm. we do a warmathon where we raise money we just open up the airwaves and take donations and you know give prizes out and help to generate as much revenue as we can for the dollar energy fund to help people that can't pay their energy bills so that they don't have their electricity shut down in the middle of the winter time. And then yeah. they, they, additionally, so over the course of, I think this will be our 12th year. We're doing the warmathon. We've helped over 9,500 families wow. and raised over, I think $3.15 million over Jeez. the course of those 12, 11 years to help, families you know keep their lights on you know, oh, keep yeah. their keep their keep Incredible. the heat on in the house when you know they're ready to shut it down so it's those kind of things that we look for to try to help out kdka has been raising funds for children's hospital since 1946 yeah, since it you know too. i mean <laughs> right. we we sold war bonds in right. world war ii i mean it, it, it the station has such a history of helping and serving the community that that we're going to continue to do that oh absolutely i mean it's, it's interesting how um a conversation i had with uh, robert mangino um about um you know he's a very religious man right you know behind the scenes but you know you can't obviously through radio you know really it's not a christian radio station you know so you have to kind of keep it in the middle but like mr rogers okay a presbyterian minister someone who with a deep religious upbringing and background was able to use television as a platform to just be good, you know, to talk about goodness, 
you know, how to be good with people, and um, it, it's unique. And, and Mangino does that. Uh, he doesn't realize that. I don't yeah. think, but he uh, he's like a Mister Rogers of the radio in, in some ways, where it, it's all a message of good and using the power of these fifty thousand watts, you know, to 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 really make a difference in somebody's life. Uh, I, I think it's the most fantastic thing with uh, radio in general, but especially with KDK's name behind it. I mean, it can't get much well, better than that. But we don't we don't want to just sit here and get modeling and say that's all we do is yeah. just right. we gotta you know. I right. mean, there, there's so much entertainment involved in radio too, oh, and I yeah. mean, I, I spent a lot of my time in my career just trying to figure out how to grab people's attention oh, and yeah. have them. That's listen. what this show is all about. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. exactly, pure entertainment. Exactly. I yeah. mean, you know, and it's. Yeah, it, it's it's comedy, it's music, it's it's you know great storytelling, it's it's helping the community, it's making them laugh, it's getting that drive, and helping yeah. helping you get through that drive in the morning, helping you get through. I mean, we haven't even mentioned like traffic and weather right. and things right. that we do every yeah. day to help people just get about their day, and so. keeping people informed every hour, half hour, just giving people information. Yeah, yeah, what's absolutely. going on in the world and locally. Yeah, I mean that's, that's incredible. So what, to oh, your point, yeah. Andy, though, I wanted to say that, that that what what I'm excited about is the next hundred years. Yeah, what I'm excited about is to what Andy was saying about uh, utilizing the website. Mm-hmm. We're more than just radio now. I mean, we right. are we we have multiple platforms in which we get and disseminate our content and our information on. You know, whether it be through social media, whether it be Facebook or Instagram or or, yeah. or Twitter, or whether it be our website. Or whether it be you know writing blogs or podcasts that we're doing right now. Yeah, I mean, this is right. these are just different ways that we can reach out and show our content on whatever platform people are 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 getting their information on. Yeah, absolutely. So, what, what is it about Pittsburgh? Okay, because I have to bring it back to Pittsburgh. Sure. <laughs> um, not only with the creation you know of KDK's legacy and the Westinghouse involvement, but sports. You know, the very first World Series, the very first professional football player, very first professional hockey player, uh, professional leagues, um, the birth of all these sports. Um, and uh, it, it is unique to Pittsburgh. The very first college basketball game was played here in Pittsburgh ever. The very first African-American basketball player, Chuck Cooper, Duquesne, you know. First um, uh, broadcast boxing match. Right. You know, the very first play-by-play. Right. They didn't even know what it was called. In fact, Harold Arlen said that when he was he caught up, got caught up watching the game instead of calling the actual plays. So he wasn't even sure if anyone's listening. You don't even know. But do you think there's something in the air, you know, um, other than the radio waves, but something that makes Pittsburgh um, a hub for a lot of this type of well, stuff? It, it was a hub for, uh, you know, up until the steel industry left town. Yeah. I mean, Pittsburgh was the hub for so much innovation worldwide. I mean, you look at our history. Uh, you account for it so brilliantly on how you look back on the history Thanks, of this yeah. town. Uh, for us, as far as uh, where we stand today, I mean, Pittsburgh did an amazing job in reinventing itself. And, you know, you have to give the you have to give the Renaissance founders a pat on the back for that and, you know, shifting the focus of this once uh, the steel mills started collapsing to, you know, shift it to Ed's and Med's. Right. And the rebuild that has happened in this town over that painful period, because, you know, we, have, we lost a lot of pop- population yeah, more than during half. that time. Yeah. But I think the innovation part of the area, I think the 
I think it also goes back to the upbringing of the area. I mean, mm-hmm. most of the people from here are blue collar, at least in their mentality mm-hmm. and uh, hard work. Uh, certainly the the tradition of, of neighborhoods here, mm-hmm. uh, which you don't see. And I've lived in a lot of different communities over the course of the years and over the across the country. That synergy that you have here in Pittsburgh because of the pride of being Pittsburgh uh, is, I would say, stronger here than in other cities. And I'm not saying other cities don't have that, but not to the core and deep. You know, it, it reaches on so many levels, checks so many boxes yeah. here in Pittsburgh, whether, you know, you're in Polish <laughs> Hill or, right. you know, uh, you know, it's like when I when we moved here, my, my wife's from here. Uh, so when we moved here, and this is a typical Pittsburgh thing, she said to me, you know, you got you got three choices of where to live. You can either live in Upper St. Clair, Bethel Park, or Mount Lebanon, because she's a South Hills girl. Okay. She's not going to want to live in the North Hills. Right, right. You know, she's not going to want to live out east. You know, she's a South Hills girl. Right, so you don't cross that those, river. <laughs> those are your choices. <laughs> right. and, and it's like, okay, you know, right. whatever. So, I, I've been a, so I'm a South Hills boy. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So, uh, so But that that's kind of what makes this community so special and and i have and i will say this point blank i i've i've as i said i've lived a lot of places i have never seen a more giving community than we have here in western pennsylvania i mean we uh i i often brag about how we have an army of anonymous people out there that are just ready to say how can i help Right. What can I do? Tell me what to do and how can I help? Mm-hmm. And when we do tell them how they can help, they do. And and it's it's mind-boggling the the how people will just call up and say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I, I'll take care of that. Let me right. let me buy her a wheelchair. Let me take care of making sure he gets a front yard or a front walk put so he doesn't have to walk through mud." You know, it's just it's it's yeah. amazing. And, and this will yeah. be the the yeah. businesses that'll come up and say, "Yeah, we'll do just like uh I don't want to sh- single out any businesses. I know a lot of them do it, but like uh, 2D Mechanical is a great example where they go, they put, they install free furnaces to people. They right. pick out yeah. a whole bunch of people and they go, wow. okay, we're going to give you a furnace now because you need it. I, 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 what companies do that? Yeah. You know? yeah. But here, it's almost a way of life. You know, Pittsburgh has a legacy of that. Uh, we, had a, we did a Christmas show where we talked about the Jewish Santa Claus. You know, this man uh, grew up an orphan. Um, a Jewish man um, who uh, saw this need in Pittsburgh to supply kind of the spirit of giving uh, to all other orphanages around Pittsburgh, not just orphanages, just for kids in general, but he specified orphanages, but literally loaded up wagonfuls of trains, 40 different cars, um, you know, of, of horse-drawn sleighs, and would lead the charge all over Pittsburgh delivering free toys to every boy and girl <laughs> as a Jewish Santa Claus. And, um, he and the people that you were just talking about are continuing that same legacy. That legacy really has been there for a long time. And it goes back to Carnegie yeah, and Frick yeah, and, you yeah. know, the pressure that they put on each other and mm-hmm. these multi-multi-millionaires to say, your heritage here is you got to give back to the community. And, you know, we have this, we, right. we have an incredible library system that was donated to us. You know? Right. We have an incredible endowments that take place every year that were given to us. You know, mm-hmm. when it was given to us by these 
icons of industry that, yeah. that, that, that built their wealth but then gave their wealth back to the community. They did. And that, yeah. that you know, when you got that kind of heritage in your back pocket, that's kind of hard to turn your back on. Oh, yeah, when you, especially when you have names like, you know, Buell Foundation or Carnegie, you know. Right. And like, Heinz uh, Foundation. Yeah, Heinz Hall. exactly. Heinz I mean, it's, it's incredible. They really did. They felt that Pittsburgh was worthy enough yeah. uh, to keep that going, you know, keep that legacy going and to keep giving. So we, we want to continue to tell those stories and inspire people to continue that, you know, from when we're long gone. Right. That's right. That's right. Well, hey, um, if there's anything else you'd like to say. I cannot think of a better medium to celebrate than radio, especially in its 100th year, because of what radio has brought to so many people and enriched so many lives and brought innovation to so many, many people. And, you know, this is the one part of my job that I love is do you realize that, that we are, whether we know it or not, we're the, we're the friends to a number of lonely people in the community were the voices that they hear and talk to and and listen to when they go to bed and wake up in the morning and really don't have anybody necessarily in their lives to mm-hmm. spend time with. But we provide a, a, a kinship, a friendship, a friend, an yeah. entertainment part that that is so lacking in their lives that we, we, we provide a service. And I often think about that when I'm when I'm wondering whether or not we're helping or affecting or causing change or or you know you want to help somebody have a better day mm-hmm. you know just turn on the radio and you'll have a better day right right so that's how I got listening to the Undercover Club I thought I was part of a family I felt yeah. I felt like I was part of Bob Logue's little group of you know friends and that was what kept me company whenever i was radio is the ultimate friend my grandmother who was born the great depression you know uh 1920 she was born and uh told me the importance of radio to her when she was a little kid a little girl Mm -hmm. growing up in manhattan and uh during the great depression and and she was a fan of hg wells and and knew you know also a fan of mercury theater and just you know how great that was and, and just all these and to the day she died had that radio on KDK on, you know, uh, all night long. And um, because of, thanks to her, I can't sleep now without some kind of noise in the background. <laughs> but that's all because of her and her love of radio, you know. But, um, yeah, it is that friend, you know. Um, it, it was a, a parent even to her uh, growing up. Was a, uh, Her mother died when she was four years old. You know, this was a, uh, it was the voice, you know, of reason, the voice that she could look up to and uh, to really call a friend. Yeah. You know, that's incredible. The the legacy of radio is fantastic, and that is exactly why I wanted to have you on. Oh well, thank you. I appreciate because you it. are whether you you know, and I but I know I know you you feel it, but you are part of that legacy of radio. You are the you know, the guy for the hundredth anniversary. We will look back upon that fifty years, two hundred years, and say what was going on here. And, and you know, I can only see good things. And, uh, and 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 just the uh, the legacy is uh, fantastic. Thank you for keeping it going. Well, if we can entertain yeah. one person, if we can help one person, if we can put a smile on one person's face, then we've achieved something that day. And that's you know that's all as human beings we look to try to do. You know, that's right? Make it a better day for someone else. That's right. That's right. Well, without further ado, we end every show with a saying. And if you would do us the honors, that's it, Fort Pitt. <laughs>